Brethren, censuses go back to ancient times. Censuses go back to ancient times. It's a historic fact uh, confirmed not only through archaeology, but also through biblical records that the most ancient civilizations kept records of the living. Originally, these records of the living were written on clay tablets, clay tiles, as you can imagine. And they were then recorded on scrolls, papyrus, and later books. When people died, their names were scratched out of the clay tablets or the clay tiles or scratched out of the books. Examples of these ancient clay tablets you may have seen at different museums. But examples of these ancient clay tablets, some of the most ancient are held in the British Museum. We were able to be over for the feast a few years back in England and visit the British Museum and in London. And uh, there are ancient uh, tiles and tablets uh, from ancient Mesopotamia, from the lands of ancient Samaria and ancient Babylon that are dated easily to 3800 to around 4000 B.C., If you think about your chronology, that's very interesting, isn't it? That the earliest records of the living seem to be dated from around 3,500, 3,800. It gets a little fuzzy on the dating uh, to right around 4,000 B.C. Similarly, the ancient Egyptians maintained censuses, and they began around 3,000 B.C., quite a long time ago. Later, the Greeks... The Chinese began maintaining records of the living. The Romans in the 6th century B.C. under a Roman emperor named King Servius Tullius, King Servius Tullius, around the 6th century B.C., implemented a system where they would do a census of the world every five years. Every man, woman, child, the family would return to their place of birth for a census. Of course, you're very familiar with that census or the result of those censuses, aren't you? Let's turn to Luke chapter 2 because we read about one of the censuses that was conducted about 2,000 years ago in Luke chapter 2, a very important census. Turn to Luke chapter 2. And this one was conducted by the decree of Emperor Augustus, Emperor Augustus Caesar. Now, by the time of this census, brethren, records of the living, books of the living, had been maintained and recorded by kings and emperors for 3,000, 3,500 years, almost 4,000 years. And here in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, you're very familiar It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And so, as was the tradition and the law in the Roman Empire, every five years the census was conducted. And so, Joseph, verse 4, went up with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child, and they were registered. And their names were recorded into the books of the living. The books of the living. Why did ancient kings record the names of the living? Well, in addition to the kings simply wanting to have a count of how many subjects were in their territory, 
it was very practical to know how many people you could field for an army. But it wasn't just important to know how many able-bodied fighting men of fighting age you had available. You also needed to know what sort of support system you could put in place to provide the food and the supplies for those armies. You needed to know how much food was required to sustain the kingdom. It wasn't all just out of munificence or beneficence, but if you had areas of your kingdom starving to death, that wasn't good for tax purposes, right? So you needed to be able to calculate how much food was needed in different parts of the kingdom. And so understanding how many subjects you had uh, throughout the land was very practical. Of course, tax revenue. Those were some of the reasons that books of the living were created. Now, if your name was recorded in the book of the living, you were counted as a subject of that land, not a citizen, a subject. There's a difference between a citizen and a subject, but you were counted as a, as a subject of the land. And when a person died in ancient Babylon, Samaria, China, Rome, guess what happened? Your name was struck off of the book or out of the book, crossed out or chiseled out of the tile. Now, there were occasionally extreme situations where a criminal would be just a notorious criminal guilty of capital crimes, typically treason, typically some sort of violence against the royal house. And in those instances, their names would be struck out of the books of the living, although they were still alive. And typically they would be exiled. Typically they would be exiled. Sometimes they would be uh, executed. But typically they would often just be exiled. And that was not a pleasant experience. I won't digress but I'll just say that if you were exiled, especially in, the, in Rome, uh, it was really horrible. Um, just picture yourself on a little island, you know, and, and there's a soldier in a boat making sure you don't get off the island and there's nothing on the island. And that, you can imagine your fate. The ancient Egyptians were famous for when there would be a changeover from one dynasty to another, especially a hostile changeover, they would chart carve out or chisel out the names of the prior nobility or pharaohs from the statues. You're all familiar with that, right? They would ch chisel out the names if, if it was a hostile takeover. Their names would be struck out of the records of the living. They would be marked out. And those who had their names struck out of the records of the living, they were no longer numbered among the living. They were no longer registered among the living. They were persona non grata. They had no... And we'll talk about this more later. They had no legal standing, no rights. They were non-existent. They were non-existent. Their names were blotted out. This was common among the Sumerians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Chinese, the Greeks and the Romans. Of course, God registers the living as well. And God has done that from the beginning. Now, you're familiar with God's register of the living by the nomenclature of the book of life. But that's just an English construct to old ancient language phraseology. But you're familiar with the book of life. It can be translated just as accurately the book of the living or the register of the living. God also appears to maintain additional books. 
don't want anybody, you know, falling out of their chair. But uh, there's nowhere in the Bible that God says he's limiting himself to only maintaining one book. And there appear to be other records, other registers, other books that God maintains. We'll look at some of those. Now, as a Christian, brethren, especially here at the Feast of Tabernacles, one of our goals, and I think it's worth stating and thinking about it and meditating on it during the course of the sermon, is to be indelibly recorded in the book of life. To be indelibly recorded and to, to claim that promise of the book of life. That our names would never be blotted out from the book of life. And so the title for the sermon today is simply The Promise of the Book of Life. The Promise of the Book of Life. <clears throat> Christians claim that hope and that promise of being recorded permanently, indelibly, in the book of life. And God's true servants have always hoped for eternal life. God's true servants have always, brethren, had an understanding. It goes back anciently. That God maintains a record of the living. And that's our hope. Our hope of resurrection and immortality. Where's the first reference to the book of life? Don't answer, but where's the first reference to the book of life? How, how ancient of an understanding is this? Is this something we came up with, you know, Mr. Armstrong came up with? Or maybe Jesus Christ introduced this concept? How ancient is the understanding, well, it goes back to significantly before Moses, but it's recorded, the first instance chronologically is recorded in Exodus chapter 32. That's the first biblical reference to the book of life. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 32 and verse 30. And you will see, brethren, that what we are hoping for and one of the reasons we, we love God's laws and we, we embrace God's laws and we embrace God's holy days and we embrace God's plan it's because we love God, we honor him, we fear him, we know he's good, he's full of love. But brethren, we also understand that God is the greatest giver ever and God wants to give us eternal life. And through the holy days, we, we, we learn how to attain eternal life. And each of the holy days is, represents and, and explains a, a step along the path. And so God's servants have always had that understanding that there's a hope in a resurrection and that God is indeed recording the names of the saints and, and others in his book of life. Ex, Exodus chapter 32 and verse 30. And we're familiar with the uh, instance where Israel was rebelling and committing idolatry when Moses was away and they had the golden calf built and so forth. And Moses, what does he say? He's very upset with Israel. Exodus chapter 32, verse 30. And this is the first biblical reference to the book of life after Israel committed idolatry with the golden calf. And Moses is going to pray to make atonement for them and intercede for them. And what does he say in Exodus 32, verse 30? It came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. So now I will go up to the eternal. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. Moses was a great intercessor. He prefigured Christ in that way. And he was an intercessor. God loves the intercessory prayers of his saints. He loves that. And so Moses returned to the eternal and said, oh, these people have sinned a great sin. And have made for themselves a God of gold. Just really inexcusable after the miracles that God performed. That they went back to idolatry. Of course they were not converted. Um, very, very few. Just, you know, very few of them actually had the Holy Spirit. But still, uh, no excuse for that. And so Moses says in verse 32. Yet now if you will forgive their sin. And the way it's written, it seems like Moses was, was 
really emotional and, and almost, it's written in a, in a, recorded after the fact, but almost that flow of, of thought, flow of consciousness. If you will record, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, it's almost an incomplete thought there from Moses. He says, I pray, blot me out of your book of life, which you have written. Moses was aware of God's register of the living. Interestingly, observant Jews, although inaccurate in a lot of what they understand, because they've rejected the New Testament and they've rejected Jesus Christ, although, you know, we love, uh, we love observant Jews, they, they hold on to a lot of what's good. But interestingly, they have a tradition that after Rosh Hashanah services, what are, what's Rosh Hashanah? That's the Feast of Trumpets. After Rosh Hashanah services, what do observant Jews say? After dismissal, what do they say to each other? They say, may you be inscribed in the book of life. Why do they say that? Because they, they're retaining a piece of understanding. When are we resurrected, brethren? At, on the, at the last trump, feast of trumpets. When will you be inscribed in the book of life indelibly and forever? Feast of trumpets. So the feast of tabernacles, of course, follows the feast of trumpets. And here we are. Picturing the kingdom, and hopefully if we stay fast, we will be in the future inscribed indelibly into the book of life at trumpets, and we will never be blotted out from the book of life. We looked at the first example, the first reference, a reference to the book of life. Where's the last reference? You know the last reference. Where's the last reference to the book of life? Well, of course, found in Revelation. Revelation was written in the early 90s A.D., how do we know that? Well, it was written before 96 A.D. because we know that Emperor Domitian died in 96. And we know from the events uh, recorded in reference in Revelation, also John's exile on Patmos, it needed to have been written before 96 A.D. Most likely, Revelation was written in the early 90s. The church has always understood that. Most scholars understand that. And so the last re reference to the book of life is found in Revelation 22, verse 18. You're familiar with it. And this is a warning that if anyone adds or takes away from the Bible, God will add or take away the plagues that are recorded in Scripture. Revelation 22, verse 18, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book uh, uh, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. If you add or take away from Scripture, you're punished, and ultimately you will receive eternal death. You'll be blotted out. You won't be in the kingdom. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 12. Speaking of the times that we're probably entering into now, brethren, but we've seen already from Moses to John, and understanding from the earliest of the scriptures to the latest that God's saints have understood the promise of the book of life. You understand that promise. And again, I think it's worth reviewing and being encouraged by, by, by brethren, there are so many references to the book of life, the register of the living in the Bible. It's, 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 it's incredible. We're going to go through some of them today. Daniel chapter 12. Speaking of the time that we're entering into, most likely, 
the prophet Daniel writes through God's inspiration. At that time, Michael, Michael, the great archangel, who one of his jobs, uh, it appears that he has been given authority over the nations of Israel, especially at the end of the age, but looks like down through time. And, and under, under God's uh, authority, he, he, he stands guard over the nations of Israel. And so it says, Michael, that great archangel, he'll stand up, that great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. So clearly this is referring to the time of Jacob's trouble. This is obviously the end of the age. Even to that time, and that at that time, your people shall be delivered. Speaking of Jacob at the end of the age. The nations of Israel at the end of the age. Everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall, be, shall awake. So referring to the second coming. Some to everlasting life. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, Daniel's sort of jumping ahead a little bit in prophecy there. Right? When are you resurrected to everlasting life? At the second coming. For those who are incorrigibly wicked and have committed the unpardonable sin, their resurrection will occur later. And their resurrection, we'll discuss that a little bit briefly, but that will be later. But so God through, God through inspiring Daniel is covering from the seventh trump all the way through to the great white throne judgment here. So we hope that we're part of those righteous uh, who are resurrected everlasting life in verse 2. Those who are wise, are we wise? Do we understand why we're keeping the holy days? Do we understand that God's laws are good and that they apply and they, they help us to be happy and they set us apart and they please God when we keep them and we love them? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel understood about the promise of the book of life as well. Mr. Weston wrote about uh, this um, verse very recently. He wrote about it uh, in the July-August 2021 Living Church News. Mr. Weston wrote about uh, life after death. What does the Old Testament teach? And he wrote about this verse right here, Daniel chapter 12. And he, I'll read what he wrote, and then he's going to reference another verse that it's inspiring to look at. One of the most beautiful Verses in relation to the book of life. Mr. Weston writes regarding Daniel 12. Note that Daniel refers to, quote, everyone who is found written in the book. Daniel 12, verse 1. What is this book? Da David refers to it in Psalm 69, where he speaks of the wicked and declares, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. That's verse uh, 28. Let's turn there. Mr. Weston referenced it in his article. Uh, life after death, what does the Old Testament teach in the re recent LCN? And then Mr. Weston references David writing about it in Psalm 69. Let's turn back to Psalm 69. David writes about the book of the living a number of times. Psalm 69, verse 27. This is considered one of the primary Old Testament references to the book of life. You know, sadly, depressingly, in the, uh, sec in the general professing Christian world, uh, some scholars argue this is the only reference to the book of life, which is just pathetic. It's, it's pathetic. Um, but they don't, have, they don't understand. But this is considered one of the primary references uh, in the Old Testament to the, to the book of life. Uh, the scholars will acknowledge in the New Testament there's a few other references. 
Psalm 69, verse 27. What does David uh, write about here? It's, it's interesting. Psalm 69. And there's a more beautiful passage, in my opinion, in a moment we'll look at. But Psalm 69 and verse 27. Now, David is talking about those who have persecuted and he persecuted him. And he says, add uh, iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Speaking of those who had hardened their hearts against him. Now, I want to uh, caution you, of course, that Deuteronomy 20, uh, 32, 25 and elsewhere, uh, Romans 12, 19, says very clearly that vengeance is God's, right? Vengeance belongs to God. Now, I'm going to help most of you understand, but I'll help explain why David's not sinning here in just a moment by what he says. But David is asking for God's vengeance on some who were hardened against him and hated him. And I'll quickly, hopefully, explain how that's not wrong of David contextually. Psalm 69, verse 27. Let Add iniquity to their iniquity. Let them not come into your righteousness. Verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. David understood that God was maintaining a register of the living. Now, as a quick side note, who was David? Well, David was God's anointed. David was God's anointed king. And so as king under God, he actually had the authority to, to make some judgments. So just as a, for those of you who are being detail and technically oriented, just be aware of that. Be very careful, though, because, again, vengeance is God's and Romans 12, 19 and so forth. We don't want to, we shouldn't pray that God would blot somebody. We should not play, pray that God would blot somebody out of the book of the living. But David was God's anointed. God talked to David. God wanted David to be king. David was anointed king. God gave, gave David the Holy Spirit, and there were some that re- were rejecting God, not just David, God. And so that's sort of helpful context as to why David could ask God what he asked him. Let's turn to Psalm 87. We're in the Psalms. This is probably a reference to the book of life. This one is a little questionable, but I, I believe this is a reference to the book of life. Psalm 87, verse 1. And this is an inspiring passage with Feast of Tabernacles intonations. Psalm 87, verse 1. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The eternal loves the gates of Zion. Zion often refers to Jerusalem, but more often refers to the holy city, the, the kingdom of God, God's spiritual government, which is represented as Zion. The eternal, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. Of course, what is the gates of Zion a reference to? What is the gates of Zion a reference to? Who goes in the gates of Zion? How many gates will there be in the new Jerusalem? Who goes in and out of the gates? We'll see that later. You should, we should all know this. How many gates? Who goes in and out of the gates? So God loves Zion, his kingdom, and who comes in and out of the 12 gates of Zion, right? Those who have been written indelibly into the book of life. So God here is speaking about his government, which is righteous and perfect. But God's looking forward to the Feast of Tabernacles and the Millennium and the New Jerusalem. When Zion will encompass all 
and only the pure and the righteous, and we'll read that later, will come in and out of his, his kingdom. God loves the gates of Zion. We, brethren, you're so blessed to understand what the theologians don't understand here. They, they, they read this, and I've read books this thick, and they ramble on about how God loved, you know, the ancient city of Jerusalem. Yeah, he loved it, but it was, it was rock and rubble, and, you know, it's been destroyed multiple times. God's referring to what you're sitting here picturing, his holy kingdom that's going to be established. And he, God loves that. He loves that more than all the dwellings of Jacob. You, you know, the dwellings of Jacob include the United States and England and Canada and Australia and other parts. Nothing compared to what God's looking forward to. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, all Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. That is such a beautiful um, projection where God is saying, in Zion, all people from all nations and all races, no matter how big or small of a part they played in his plan, if they were righteous, they'll be in New Jerusalem. That's what he's saying there. And he'll remember you. And he'll remember you for the good. He'll blot out your sins. We'll talk about that later. And he'll remember you for the good. Isn't that, isn't that um, intimate, how God references there? Looking forward to New Jerusalem, he says, Look, I'm going to remember Rahab and those of Philistia and so forth. And I'll, and I'll remember who was born there and who was born there. And of Zion it shall be said, verse 5, this one and that one were born in her. Born into the kingdom of God. And the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record... When he registers the peoples, this one was born there. I think that's another reference to the book of the living. Uh, you, want, you want to be written right there. Let's turn to Psalm 139. David <clears throat> references the book of life in Psalm 139. This is not hidden, it's hidden from the world, but this is not, we, this is, we, we've known this. God's saints, down through time, from Moses, and I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm, 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 I'm fairly sure, you know, from the Garden of Eden, God's saints understood, because <clears throat> who, who, was, who was the first teacher? Who was the first preacher? It was Jesus Christ in the Garden of Eden, I'm sure he discussed this. Psalm 139, verse, let's begin in, I'd love to read the whole passage, uh, but let's begin in verse 13, Psalm 139, verse 13, for you have formed my inward parts, David is speaking of his conception, you have formed my inward parts, you have covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David acknowledged and proclaimed the, just the genius of how God has created life and human life. And David says, marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. David meditated on God's awesomeness, right? God's genius. David continues, my frame was not hidden from you. My frame was not hidden from you. 
when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. God knew David before he was formed. God knew David before how many days were there? How many days? None. None. And yet, today, people argue about, you know, how many months is it okay to let a baby develop before they end its life? David says that God knew him. His frame was not hidden. People argue that means skeleton. No. Your eye saw my substance being yet unformed. The Hebrew there, it, it means what you're reading. It's, it's, it means just little, tiny, formless mass. As little and formless as you can imagine. And he was written in God's book. When there were yet no days. How precious also are your thoughts of me or to me, O God. Remember, we are God's workmanship. You and I are God's workmanship. David was God's workmanship. You could parallel this scripture. We won't turn to it, but with Ephesians 2 verse 10, for example. Ephesians 2 verse 10, where God tells you and me that we're also his workmanship. Since we're in the time of David, let's read another reference to the book of life or the tablets of the living. It was very well understood by the patriarchs and matriarchs. Of course, don't answer, but who could guess a matriarch or patriarch from around David's time that might also have been aware of this? You know, we think of Abraham, and we think of Sarah, and we think of Job, and so forth. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 25. How common was this knowledge among God's people, among Israel, and even some of the nations that associated with Israel? Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now, in 1 Samuel 25, we have, if you notice around verse 10, we have Nabal answers David's servants. It says, who is David and who is the son of Jesse and so forth and so forth. And if you come down to verse 14 of 1 Samuel 25, now one of the young men told Nabal, told Abigail, one of uh, Abigail's servants, uh, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master and Nabal reviled them, right? Abigail was an interesting lady. And Abigail also understood about the book of life. I don't know exactly how much she understood, but Abigail seems to have understood 
about the book of life, the registers of the Abigail is actually going to use more ancient phraseology to refer to the book of the living. You'll see that. She's not going to refer to it as paper, papyrus. Uh, she's going to refer to it as clay tablets, clay tiles, which makes sense because of the, of the age um, that David lived in, right? You were still in the ancient world. Uh, some paper uh, technology was being invented, but it wasn't in very wide use. It was mostly papyrus, so it was mostly tile, tiles, clay tablets. So Abigail's language is going to refer to, to clay tiles, to, to tablets. And she's going to use this language in a, in a really intimate way, in a really intimate way. She seemed to understand that David was God's anointed and that God was in charge and God recorded the names of his servants in the book of the living. So where do we see that? 1 Samuel 25, let's come down to verse 23. 1 Samuel 25, verse 23. Now, when Abigail saw David, so again, Abigail's husband had been uh, wrong in how he treated David. When Abigail saw David, she hastened to dismount from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, oh, me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. She interceded. God loves intercession. God loves when you intercede for others. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Because David was asking for, um, for, for supplies, right? And Nabal said no. And so, and Abigail seemed to understand who David was. And Abigail seemed to understand who the God of Israel was. And we'll see that. And so Abigail says, she intercedes and she says, don't let this blood be on him. So women, we, we pray for husbands that are wise and godly. But look at, look at Abigail's example. She was a wonderful woman. Wonderful woman. And she says in verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. She takes the blame. When we intercede, we don't intercede self-righteously. Oh, I'm thankful I'm so much better than this person. Please forgive them, but look how good I am. Right? That's how we intercede. When you intercede, you intercede like Moses, right? You fall on your face. Or like Abigail, it's my fault. I should have been a better wife. I should have helped. God looks on the heart. Abigail was... I don't know how much, but Abigail seemed to understand a lot. Very close to God. Forgive the trespasses of your servant, maidservant, for the Lord will certainly... So she took that sin upon herself. The eternal will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the eternal. And evil is not found in you throughout your days. She knew the eternal. She knew David's... But role, his ordained and appointed role. And so verse 29, and she understood apparently that David's house would be established. And she says, yet a man has risen to pursue you. Speaking of Saul, and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the eternal your God. She's referring to the ancient practice of 
writing the names of the subjects on clay tablets. And those clay tablets were actually bound, and there's archaeological evidence of this. They were actually bound in fine leather pouches, and the kings kept the clay tablets with the names of the subjects in the, in the leather pouches. And she seemed to understand that that's what God did in a spiritual way. And she said of David, you know, I understand David, my, my Lord, the, my king. I'm praying that your name is bundled, is on those tablets, in that bundle, in that leather pouch that the eternal God protects and keeps because it's important and it's precious. You, the kings wanted to know the names of their subjects and how many subjects they had. And that, that was important information. And the eternal God knows the names of his subjects. And he knew the name of David. Let's turn to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Jesus Christ, of course, was the God of the Old Testament, and Jesus Christ walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden, and Jesus Christ was the one that spoke to Abraham and spoke to David, and he was the eternal that appointed David to be king over Israel. And then Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and he began the New Testament church, and he had his disciples. And in Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 70 disciples, Luke chapter 10. And we read, let's begin in verse 17, the 70 return. And they were happy, and they should have been happy. And they said, we, we kept the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a great joy. And we fellowshiped. And we, you know, the, those of us who are elders, we, we anointed some people and you intervened and, and you blessed us with, you gave us rain on a certain day because you wanted us to have an inside day that day. But then on Monday, we wanted to reschedule family day and it was great. And, and you were with us. And the disciples came back and they said, you, you did these great things for us, you know, and we cast out demons in your name. That's pretty awesome. And we healed people in your name and so forth. And Jesus says to them in verse 18, that's great, good, that's good, that's great. Let's just understand, though, who you're talking to. That's what Jesus is helping them to understand. He wasn't mad at them. He says, that's good. But understand, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You're speaking to the Almighty. And then he says to them, verse 19, behold, I give you authority. To trample on serpents and scorpions is going to protect them when they're going about doing their, their jobs as, as disciples, as ministry. I give you authority. You'll trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. And that's wonderful. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in all of this. That's your job and that's something to be thankful for. But re, rather rejoice because your names are written in the book of the living. Your names are written in heaven. Your names are written in God's register of the living. Brethren, your names are written in a spiritual way 
Now, if God wants to have a spiritual book, he can have a spiritual book. He may have a spiritual book. Maybe, I, don't, I don't know if the book of the living is multiple volumes. I don't know if it's one big volume. I don't know. It could be a scroll. I look forward to seeing it. Maybe we'll be able to see it when we're in God's family. But we're not going to limit God. But God can't have a book, spiritual book. You're right? And so your names are written in God's book. And it's very precious to God. And that's what we rejoice in. That's what we rejoice in. And all of those patriarchs and matriarchs and saints that have come before us, that have died in the faith, we rejoice because their names are in that book. Their names are in that book. God doesn't forget. The kings don't forget the subjects. It's bound. It's protected. I won't turn to it for sake of time, but Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that uh, the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, right? Hebrews chapter 12. You've come to, you know, you haven't come to the, to the mountain shaking with fire. You've come to the holy mountain in Hebrews chapter 12. And Paul understood what he was talking about. You weren't there at Mount Sinai. You, you've come to the holy mountain. And he says, you've come to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. And those saints and patriarchs and matriarchs that have gone before us are registered in heaven. Now, in ancient times, sometimes an incorrigible criminal would be blotted out from the records of the living. We do have free choice. In Rome, if you were convicted of treason, capital crime against the royal house, you would be declared damnation or damnatio memoriae. Damnation or damnatio memoriae. What does that sound like? That's Latin, right? What does that sound like? Damnation memoriae. The damnation of memory. And you would be blotted out from the records of the living. Now, in, in, in ancient languages, to be damned it does not mean exactly what it means today. It's not like a curse. It meant you were, you were blotted out. You were obliterated. No memory of you was to remain. Damnatio memoriae. And the Romans implemented that. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, the Egyptians and others would carve out, chisel out names from statues of, of prior people that were enemies of the state or whatever, and they'd be blotted out. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 3. We don't want to be blotted out from the book of the living. We read of a dead church, Revelation chapter 3, the Sardis church. The Sardis church in general preceded Mr. Herbert Armstrong. It was large in the 1800s. It is absolutely still around, and it is absolutely still fairly large. And they're, they're God's church. They're God's church. And it's a decent size group of people. So they will exist down through to the end of the age. And what does God say about them? He says regarding Sardis, these things, verse 1, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have a name that you're alive, but you're not alive, you're, you're dead. You have the name, 
church of God. You, you have some understanding, but you're, you're, just, you're not doing what you should be doing. Be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect. Now, any of us can be vulnerable to uh, these different spirits, right? Laodicean, sort of uh, very liberal, very judgy. Uh, I'm rich and wealthy. Don't tell me what to do. I'll do my own thing. Uh, there's a government misunderstanding they have. That, those are sort of symptomatic of Laodicea. Sardis is different. Um, they're really nice. <laughs> they, just they just don't get motivated and about certain aspects of, of, of God's uh, law. Uh, they're around. They're around. And God says, strengthen what remains. You know, you're, I love you. You're my saints. Strengthen what remains. I've not found your works perfect. Therefore, remember how you have received and heard. And hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. So they'll, they'll be around at the end of the age. And you will not know what hour I will come. Because they don't even understand and preach and teach the identity of Jacob. I, um, it's, it's, it's painful when you're, you're counseling with somebody from Sardis. And, and, and um, sometimes they just like, they can't understand certain things. And... and um, the identity of modern Israel is one of those things that, that they, they won't sometimes accept. And so if you don't understand the identity of modern Israel, you don't understand the, who the time of Jacob's trouble is upon, you, the prophecy doesn't make sense, and, and what we do doesn't make sense, and the telecast doesn't make sense, and God says, look, understand, and I'm going to come upon you as a thief in the night, and you'll not know the hour I'll come upon you. You have a few names, even as Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they're defiling their garments more. They're defiling their garments more. They're getting into paganism more. They're, they're adopting what the professing Christian world has been doing. They're starting to do that more. And God says, don't defile your garments. And walk with me in white and be worthy. Overcome. If you do this, you'll be clothed in white garments. Verse 5. And I will not blot you out from the book of life. Damnatio memoriae. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. At the great white throne judgment, the dead will be judged according to their works. Anyone not found written in the book of life will be cast in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 12. 13, 14. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. Verse 15. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Don't have time for it. Mr. O'Gwen has an article in the uh, 2002 Tomorrow's World, Understanding the Resurrections. 2002 Tomorrow's World, Understanding the Resurrections, Mr. John O'Gwen, and he writes about that. You might want to read that later. God also appears to maintain records. God maintains records. Let's turn back to Job. We're going to move very quickly through the remaining hour of my material. Job, there's a lot about the book of life in the registers of the living. Job chapter 13. Job lived during the days of Isaac. At this point in the Record, he's still complaining a little bit. Job hasn't learned what God wanted him to understand. 
And so in Job chapter 13, Job's complaining some. Now, be careful. Job was righteous, and God says he was more righteous than anybody else. I will tell you this. Job was more righteous than... I know he was more righteous than me. He wasn't the worst guy in the whole world. He didn't have the worst vanity in the whole world. He, he, he was very righteous. He had a little bit of an issue with some, some, some pride. A little bit. It wasn't horrible. God didn't say, look at Job. He's out of control. He said, look at Job. He's great. But like us, God expected more of him. And he got a little bit grumpy about things, and a little bit self-righteous about things. Anyways, don't have time for all that. In Job chapter 13, he's sort of complaining some. And Job lived during the days of Isaac, just for uh, reference, uh, for those of you who like to know the chronologies. Job 13, verse 23. And he says to God, how many are my iniquities and sins make me know. He's sort of complaining. He's like, look, God, I'm pretty good, you know. Uh, make me know my transgression and my sin. He wanted to understand why he was having such, such, such punishment, such trials. Why do you hide your face and regard me your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf? He was like, God, I'm just a, I'm a leaf. I'm nothing. Will you pursue dry stubble? You write bitter things against me. You write bitter things against me. Job understood that God does keep records. Let's turn to Psalm 56. David understood that as well. Psalm 56. God keeps records of our deeds. He knows if we're here at the feast. Now again, brethren, does God need to have a book to remember? No. But God says he keeps records and he keeps books. Psalm 56, verse 5. Beautiful. Touching passage by David. Relevant for us as well. Psalm 56, verse 5, when we're dealing with suffering and trials. All day they twist my words. David was talking about those who were his enemies. Sometimes you have enemies. Even the righteous have enemies sometimes. Hopefully no enemies in God's church, but in the world you have those who oppose you. And, and God allows that for our strengthening. And David says, all day they twist my words. Their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. They're, they're looking to cause me harm. And you've dealt with that sometimes, right? Where people just, they just want to be your enemy. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. They lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity and anger? Cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Are not my sufferings in your book? God records your sufferings. He knows your sufferings. He knows your deeds. Ancient kings kept records of deeds. We won't turn, but in Ezra, jot down in your notes, Ezra chapter 4. In Ezra chapter 4, you have King Artaxerxes. Remember King Artaxerxes? And remember when Ezra was uh, rebuilding the temple? And remember when the enemies of the Jews wrote to King Artaxerxes? And they said, these Jews are rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple, and they're, 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 they're troublemakers. And what did King Artaxerxes do? He looked in the records of the living. And he looked at the history of the people who'd lived there. How about King Ahasuerus? Remember King Ahasuerus? You all know King Ahasuerus because he was king when 
Who? Esther. Esther was alive. And remember when King Ahasuerus, you find this in Esther chapter 6, King Ahasuerus asked for the records of the living to be read to him because he couldn't sleep. And what did God allow to happen? God allowed King Ahasuerus to read about Mordecai and what Mordecai did. And King Ahasuerus said, had Mordecai been rewarded? And they said, no. And he said, bring Mordecai in here. That's a fun story. Remember that? God also maintains records of the living. Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verse 2. Isaiah 65, verse 2. Speaking of rebellious Israel's deeds, written before God, God says, I stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. A people who, this is not us, but it's, it's his people down through the generations. Israel through the generations have been rebellious. And they who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. Who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars. They're, they're enveloped in paganism. Who eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things in their vessels. Who say to God, verse 5, keep to yourself, do not come near me. And that's what the world tells God today. And that's what modern Israel tells God, right? Keep to yourself, don't come near me. For I'm holier than you. That is literally what is happening today. If you don't accept and advocate all the agendas out there that are evil, they say, they say those agendas are holy and you're the one who's, who's not holy. God says in verse 6, Behold, it's written before me. It's written before me. I will not keep silence, but will repay. God keeps a record. God keeps a record. Now, it's important to note that if we sin and we fully repent of our sins, God does blot out those sins. You can reference that in Hebrews chapter 10, for example. You can reference that in the Psalms. Psalm 103.12, God God will blot out your sins. Psalm 103.12, your sins will be remembered no more. Isaiah 43.25. Isaiah 43.25. So we want to hold fast, brethren. We want to hold fast to that promise to the book of life. In Revelation chapter 13, let's turn quickly. We know that at the end of the age, Satan and the beast will wage war on the earth and they'll wage war on God's saints. Revelation 13. And Revelation 13 is the same scene as described and the same beast as described in Daniel 7. Revelation 13, Daniel 7, same scene, same beast, each beast with seven heads. This is the end time Last head, the Roman Empire, the end of the age, Revelation 13, verse 8. And God says there's coming a time, and we're, we're, we're coming to this time, brethren. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Revelation 13, verse 8, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. The book of life is precious, and our names are written there. And God is going to judge whose names are going to be retained. Same things repeated in Revelation 17, verse 7. Revelation 17, verse 7. And 8. 
An angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven horns, heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw who was and is not and will send out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Speaking of the, the final resurrection revival of the ancient Babylonian system. Verse 8, and all those who dwell on the earth will marvel except God's saints. You will not marvel. You will not be in awe of that system. Those whose names are not written on the book of life, in the book of life, they're going to marvel. They're going to marvel. You won't be dissuaded, deceived to worship the beast. But that's Satan's goal. Brethren, true Christians are going to hold fast to the holy days, to the Ten Commandments, which are good, and to the promise of the book of life. How do we do that? I'm not going to give a lot of points. Any, I'm just going to turn to one passage. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. God's law is good, Paul says. Jesus Christ said to keep the commandments. The Sabbath, the holy days are good. The more we keep them, the more we love them, the more we develop character, godly character. What is one of the things that Mr. Armstrong would tell us that God can't create? God cannot create character by fiat. God cannot create character by fiat. Mr. Armstrong would tell us that over and over, we produce godly character through obedience, through practice. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. That's why the Holy Days come every year. Verse 18. Let's begin in verse 17. 2 Peter 3.17. You therefore, beloved, since you know these things, you know these things. You know these things, right? I didn't have to give a sermon to teach you about the Feast of Tabernacles. I didn't have to give a sermon. To, and those are wonderful. I'll, later, I'll hopefully give a sermon, and it'll be more of that kind of a teaching about the feast, right? But, but you know these things. You know the Sabbath, the holy days. We don't believe in a Trinitarian triune God. We believe in the second coming and so forth. We don't keep the pagan holidays. Beloved, you know these things. Beware. 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 Trials are coming. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. Being led away with the error of the wicked. We looked a little bit at the wicked, the beast, Satan, who wants your name blotted out of the book of life. But instead, verse 18, grow in grace and in knowledge. Why grace and knowledge? The more you grow in grace, the more you understand you need Jesus Christ's sacrifice. That was the lesson for Job. Humility. Obedience. Doing it. Feast after feast. And Sabbath after Sabbath. And prayer after prayer. Grace. And knowledge. Understanding about how to apply God's law. 
how God's mind is represented by his statutes. You're not looking to find excuses in how to not walk or behave or judge according to God's law. But you're bringing your mind in conformity to God's law. So we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we give him the glory and the honor. And we do. We give him the glory and the honor for being here and for the seven days ahead of us and so forth. The world is increasingly rejecting God. And we are going to stand out more as we hold fast. Let's see that in Malachi chapter 3. Two more scriptures. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3. A famous passage. A powerful passage. Also referring to the book of life. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 16. Who is God talking about here through Malachi's prophet? He's talking about his saints. What does God say of his saints here? Let this reflect us, brethren, as we claim the promise of the book of life. God records, then those who feared the Lord. Those who feared the Lord. Do you love the Lord? Yes. Do you fear the Lord? Yes. Spoke to one another. And the eternal listened to them. He listened to them. He listens to me and you. And he heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. There's another book. The records of the deeds. Of your conversations and your behavior at the feast. My conversations, my thoughts, my behavior. And a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear the eternal. And who meditate on his name and they shall be mine. The Lord of hosts says. On that day I will make them my jewels. We saw that reference in Daniel. And you'll shine brightly. As a man spares his son who serves him to be recorded on the tablets of the living or the book of the living or the register of the living is important to the king. You're his subject. And God is a perfect king. And like Abigail prayed regarding David. Your name, we pray in my name, will never be blotted out or struck and stricken. And it's in that pouch. And God protects that pouch. You've got to do the deeds to stay written. And at that time, at the end of the age, which is the time we're approaching, God now speaks on behalf of the angelic hosts, the world. And he says, at that time, then you'll again discern between the righteous and the wicked. When those who stand fast, who are written indelibly in the book of life, receive eternal life, do you think the world will then discern between the righteous and the wicked? You better believe it. Right now, the, you're a light to the world, but the world doesn't quite discern that you're holy. The world doesn't quite discern, right? They think you're stuck in some ancient you know, interpretation of Christianity. But when Daniel's prophecy comes 
true. When the second coming occurs, then the, those people, they will then discern. The, the, the world will discern. Because when you are changed and you are bright and you're in the first resurrection and you're holy, then the world will be able to discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. Brethren, we're thankful for God's mercy. We're thankful that he maintains a book of the living. And so as we keep the feast and it pictures the kingdom and it pictures us receiving eternal life, let's think about that and let's pray that we are worthy to claim the promise of the book of life.